Isn't that great? Well, happy Easter, everyone. It's so great to see all of you. This is our uh, fourth and final service this weekend, and it has been uh, such a thrill to uh, celebrate the greatest event in all of human history. It really is. Um, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer, and I've got so many things to talk to you about, so uh, let's begin uh, just by uh, asking God to bless our time, okay? Father, thank you. What a beautiful day, a glorious day this, this is, and it really is the greatest we're celebrating the, the greatest day in all of human history, but God, I know that it's not always clear to, to, to everyone, so I pray today that you would speak uh, through me very clearly, God, so that we would understand, that we would comprehend what Easter was really all about. So God, thank you so much for our time together. Bless each one of us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is Easter? What's the real Easter story? You kind of got a flavor from these kids what Easter is about, but, but what is the real Easter story? Well, the real Easter story can be found in the Bible, in the scriptures. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15, and if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We, hopefully you received a program when you walked in. We call it Baywatch around here. And inside of your Baywatch is a program or, or a sheet with the notes, all the verses listed there for you. Uh, I think they're all there, and so you can just follow along. You can also download our South Bay Community Church app. If you go to the Google Store or the App Store or the, the, uh, the Apple Play Store, you can download it, South Bay Community Church. And when you click on the app, once you download it, click on Weekend's Service, all the scriptures will be there for you, all right? So Mark chapter 15, what is the real Easter story? It's found right here, found right here in the scriptures. So let me read it to you, starting in Mark 15, verse 42. And it says this, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And when, when he rolled the stone against the entrance to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of jo Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. For the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so, verse 8 says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took, uh, and took, uh, took hold of his feet and worshiped. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus died. He was laid in a tomb. He was buried. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. That is the real Easter story. You find it in the scriptures. You find it in the Bible, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first question that begs to be answered is, was it real? 
Is this account real? Did, it, did this really happen? Did Christ really rise from the dead 2,000 years ago? Well, today I want to walk you through some very interesting information, fascinating things that would point to the resurrection of Christ, that would point to the truth. To answer the question, did this really happen? I want to take you back through history. I want to walk you through some history. This is really interesting stuff. First, let me take you back roughly 428 years before Christ. So 428 B.C., before Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Another baby was born, this time to a very rich family in Greece. The parents of this newborn baby named him Platon, or Plato for short. Well, Plato went on to become a great Greek philosopher, According to Encyclopedia Britannica, he, w he had unparalleled influence. Here's a bust of Plato that can be uh, seen at the Vatican Museum in Rome. Plato uh, was a great man, studied under Socrates, taught Aristotle, established the academy, which was really the first known university. And the reason we know anything about Plato, is even though he lived more than 2,400 years ago, is because of his writings which are referred to, as the 30, uh, referred to as the 36 Dialogues. And that would include his greatest work, Plato's, the Rep Plato's Republic. You probably heard about that. Dialogue is a very large body of work that was written in and around 400 B.C. The earliest manuscript that we have of his work dates back to the second century. That would be 200 A.D. This is it right here. This is the earliest known manuscript of Plato's work, the Dialogues. Is housed in the British Library in London. Again, you can see it's only a, a fragment of the manuscript, but they know it's Plato's work. Now, here's what you need to know about this particular manuscript. This is not the original. This is a copy of the original. The original long disappeared, ceased to exist. There aren't any, in fact, there aren't any originals of any documents from the antiquities because they all unraveled and fell apart. You know, in ancient times, when writers like Plato would write something, they wrote, they wrote on papyrus paper, much like this here. This is papyrus paper. It's made out of papyrus reed. And papyrus is very brittle and very fragile. And after a while, when you write on it, the ink will begin to fade, just as it does today. If you write on something, you leave it out in the sun, it'll begin to fade. And then papyrus would itself just fall apart, literally disintegrate after years and years and years. So scribes, in order to preserve a work, scribes would have to copy the original work. They would have to make copies of the original work. They didn't have copy machines back there, back then, so a scribe would sit with the original work with a blank piece of papyrus paper with a pen in hand, and he would start to write, start to copy the document. And he would copy the document until the entire document was completed. It was called a manuscript. That's what this is. This is a copy of Plato's, one of, best known, one of his best-known dialogues. It's called Phaedo. Now, as you can see from even the copy, after a while it begins to fade and the papyrus begins to fall apart. So you would have to keep making copies over and over and over to preserve the work. According to an organization called JSTOR, it's a digital library. It was founded by the former president of Princeton University. There are 250 manuscripts of Plato's work, the dialogues in existence today. 250. Now, to determine the reliability of a manuscript, you have to apply what's called the bibliographical test. The bibliographical test examines a number of important factors like when was the manuscript written and how many manuscripts are there. The more there are, the better, more authentic it's probably going to be. And as I said, when it comes to Plato's uh, dialogues, there are some 250 manuscripts of his work in existence today. Some are fragments like this. Others are complete manuscripts. And that's important 
Because it is on the basis of the bibliographical examination of these manuscripts that we believe that Plato was the real deal, that Plato was a real man, that he existed, and that he wrote the dialogues. And I think you would agree with me. There isn't a person in this room, there probably isn't a person in this world who doesn't believe that Plato once existed. Same is true with someone like Homer. You might remember Homer from your high school lit class. He wrote Iliad. You had to read that in high school. He wrote that 2,800 years ago, 800 years before Christ was born. Homer wrote the Iliad. The earliest known manuscript of the Iliad was dated 400 B.C., so 400 years after he wrote it, we came up with this manuscript. Today, there are more than 1,750 manuscripts of the Iliad in existence today. And when you apply the bibliographical test to his documents, you can't help but arrive at only one conclusion. That is, Homer was a real person, and he wrote the Iliad. Now, that brings me back to the question, did the resurrection really happen? Well, that partly depends on whether or not you believe the New Testament is a reliable and authentic document. If you believe this book to be real, then you've got to believe that the resurrection really happened because that's what this tells us about. Now, if you're not aware, the Bible is written in two parts. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, much like this little diagram here. It's got in the Old Testament 39 books, 39 separate books comprised of the Old Testament. The New Testament comprised of 27 separate books. And really, the, Old, the New Testament is really about the life of Christ and everything that happens uh, after when the church is established. First four books of the New Testament are referred to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these Gospels give us a detailed account of the life of Christ, including information about his death, and his resurrection. Now, in order to determine if Jesus was really raised from the dead, we've got to determine whether or not the New Testament is authentic. We've got to determine that. And we also, specifically, we've got to determine whether the Gospels uh, are authentic. To do that, you apply the bibliographical test. And that requires us to answer a couple of questions just before we get started. The first question is this. Did the resurrection really occur? When did it happen? If it occurred, when did it happen? Now, many Bible scholars believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday the 3rd in the year 33 A.D. Now, some say it was 30 A.D. I kind of go with the scholars that say it was 33 A.D., Friday the 3rd, 33 A.D. Now, we just read in the scriptures at the very beginning that the moment Jesus died, there was a great earthquake, shook the ground, right? So based on that knowledge, an organization known as the International Geology Review, it's a secular organization, not a religious organization, decided to study and determine whether, in fact, there was an earthquake on or about that time. And I don't know how they do it today, but with all the technology available to them, they were able to determine that there was an earthquake, there was, in fact, an earthquake on or about that time, and that led geologists and scientists to conclude that Jesus may have, in fact, been crucified on Friday, April the 3rd, in the year 33 A.D. story was reported on by NBC News and the Huffington Post, which are not Christian outlets. This is the headline from the Huffington Post. It read, Jesus' crucifixion date, possibly Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., according to earthquake study. All right, there's no question that Jesus was a man, that he existed. The question is, is he who he said he was? And they came to the conclusion that he may have possibly died on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., now, if Jesus was crucified on Friday 3rd at 33 A.D., then he would have been raised on April the 5th. That would be Sunday, April the 5th, three days later. 
The second question that needs to be answered is, when were the Gospels written? Or we kind of have an idea when Jesus was crucified, when were the Gospels written? Well, according to another Bible scholar named F.F. Bruce, the New Testament was completed or substantially completed or written by around 100 A.D. So if Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D., within 70 years, the entire New Testament, including the Gospels, was all written. All the stories, everything was written, and it became our scriptures. Um, this is what's interesting. Um, in 1920, Dr. Bernard Grenfell, who was uh, an Egyptologist and a professor of papyrology at Oxford University, came upon a collection of ancient papyri. Now remember, when the Bible was written, it's also written on papyrus. So here's Bernard Grenfell on the left. He's at one of his excavation sites. He's excavating, looking for documents. He came across a stack of papyri, and what he did was he numbered each one, papyrus 1, papyrus 2, P3, P4, P5, P6, P7, all the way down the line. He numbered them all, and then he put them away. He was so busy, he didn't have time to go through them all. And it wasn't until after he died in 1934 that Colin Roberts, a fellow at St. John's College at Oxford University, decided to sift through his collection of papyri, and he came across this fragment. It was numbered P52, Papyrus 52. When Roberts saw this, he knew immediately that the letters were Greek, and the words were Greek. In fact, some of you know Greek, and you would recognize some of the Greek letters there. And as soon as he figured out what it was, he realized it was a fragment of Scripture. It's a fragment of Scripture. And it's only a fragment because the entire Scripture is not there. But if you had the entire document, if you were to overlay these words with the entire document, it would have looked like this. On the front page, it would have looked like this. And I highlighted in yellow the words that were actually on the fragment. And translated into English, it would say this. The Jews, for us, it is not permitted to kill anyone. For that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Entered therefore again into the praetorium, Pilate, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Thou art king of the Jews. The passage comes, if you're familiar with it, comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. This would be verses 31 through 33. On the back of the P52 were written these words. This is the manuscript again. And I highlighted the yellow. In the yellow, those are the actual words that were on the manuscript. Overlaid it with the actual entire text. And it was translated into this. A king I am. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world so that I would testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears of me my voice. Said to him, Pilate, what is truth? And this having said again, he went out unto the Jews and said to them, I find not one fault in him. Again, this comes from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 37 through 33. Now, if you're familiar with the story and with these passages, it describes for us Jesus' trial before Pilate, who was the one who sentenced him to death. Grenfell never knew that what, that what he had in his possession was a manuscript fragment of the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Today, it's on display at the John Rylands University Library in Manchester, England. Most scholars believe that P52 was written somewhere around 125 to 150 A.D. So if Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D., within a little more than 100 years, this document was written. 
This was copied from the original document. Making this the oldest surviving copy of any portion of the New Testament scriptures in existence today. It is the oldest surviving copy of any portion of scripture uh, in the New Testament. And by the way, this is not the only manuscript of the New Testament that exists today. According to the Institute of New Testament Textual Research, there are more than 5,838 manuscripts of the New Testament, totaling more than 2 million, 2 million pages in existence today. That's 5,838 manuscripts. And if you put the bibliographical evidence for Plato and Homer up against the New Testament, it would look like this. Plato, on the left, is the author. He wrote the dialogues around 400 B.C. First manuscript appeared around 800 A.D. That's 1,200 years later. How many manuscripts in existence today? 250. Homer wrote Iliad in 800 B.C. The earliest manuscript showed up 400 years later. We have 1,757 manuscripts in existence today in various museums and libraries. The New Testament, written between 50 and 100 A.D., 33, remember Jesus crucified in 33 AD, rose from the dead 33 AD, written by the year 100. Earliest manuscript, I showed it to you, written around 125 AD. It's a 35-year time gap. I mean, the closer it's written, the time it was the original, the more likely it is reliable. How many manuscripts in existence today of the New Testament? 5,838. As you can see, there is no comparison. There is no comparison. The bibliographical evidence for the New Testament towers. It towers over the evidence for Plato and Homer and for that matter, every other writer and uh, author of manuscripts that come out of the antiquities. Nothing else compares to this. Aristotle, Socrates, you can name them all. They don't have the number of manuscripts to match the New Testament, what we have for the New Testament. Let me show you one more manuscript. This one gives me goosebumps. Um, that old guy that was in that video from Hawaii, he would say it gives him chicken skin. This maybe gives you chicken skin. Gives me, this one gives me goosebumps. This one is numbered P127 or Papyrus 127. It's very old. dates back to the 5th century. It's housed at the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford University. This is a papyrus manuscript of Acts chapter 10, verse 40 and 41. This comes out of the New Testament. Translated in English, here's what it says. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Church, there it is. There it is in this ancient manuscript, the words, but God raised him on the third day, and at the very end of it, he rose from the dead. There it is. See, the bibliographical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And yet, vast numbers of people, millions and billions of people, don't believe it. They don't believe that he rose from the dead. They don't even believe that Jesus existed. They have no problem believing in Plato. They have no problem believing in Homer. They have no problem believing that Alexander, Alexander the Great conquered the world. They have no problem believing that Genghis Khan ruled the Mongol Empire, that Attila the Hun was a mighty warrior, that Confucius was a Chinese philosopher, that King Tut was an Egyptian pharaoh, that Christopher Columbus discovered America. But when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, forget it. Is that you? Do you believe in Plato and Homer, but you don't believe in Jesus? 
I submit that when it comes to every historical figure and event going back hundreds and even thousands of years, still requires us to have faith. Requires us to believe, okay, this stuff, the Plato, okay, did he write that? Okay, yeah, I just, you just take it at face value. Okay, I, I, but it, it requires faith that you believe that. Unless you were there, then you don't need any faith, but none of us was there. And if by faith you believe Plato and Homer and the others existed, then why not Jesus? And I believe Plato and Homer were real people. I believe that. But believing them hasn't affected me, hasn't changed my life one iota. I believe that Alexander the Great was a, was a Greek uh, ruler. I believe that Genghis Khan was a real ruler. Attila the Hun was a real person. King Tut, Cleopatra. I mean, you can go on and on and on. All these folks, I believe they were real people. But they haven't changed my life. But believing in Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he was raised from the dead, it's been a game changer. Not just for me, but for the whole world. It's been a game changer. And it ought to be a game changer for you. You know, recently I started wondering about my ancestry and where I came from. Uh, so, you know, my roots. So I decided to take a DNA test. I didn't tell my wife Cheryl that I was going to take a DNA test, but I took a DNA test. And, you know, it's amazing how far technology has come these days because uh, they can, there's a company out there that can actually tell you uh, your DNA just based on your photograph. So I submitted my handsome mug and and here's, here's what they came back with. I couldn't believe it. I was so, so amazed. Here's what I came back with. This is who I am. I'm 41% Ainu Japanese, 19% Native Hawaiian, 17% Mexican, 13% Sub-Saharan African, and 10% North Korean. I had no idea that this is who I was. But it explains a lot of things, right? It explains why I decided to have a Mexican restaurant. Hola Paco, you know, Dios le bendiga, buenos días. Right? I mean, I had a Mexican restaurant. It explains why, you know, I can hula real, really good. Because I've, I've got a little Hawaiian in me. It explains why I've got some soul, baby. Because, you know, I've got a little African in me. And it, it explains why I love kimchi. Because I've got a little North Korean in me. I was so fascinated by this, so intrigued by this. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out what, what, what kind of dog I have. You know, I know, I, I know that caramel's a mutt. And so I decided, well, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn his photo in and see what I get. So I turned Carmel's photo in, and here's what came back. <laughs> Carmel, Carmel is 32% mestizos mexicano, 28% French, 19% Coptic Egyptian, 14% Han Chinese, and 7% Australian, mate. And um, he's got a little Mexican in him, just like me, right? He's a, he's, that's why he's part Chihuahua. Maybe we're related, I don't know. But, you know... Of course, I'm, being, I'm only messing around with you here because you really can't get someone's DNA from a photograph. I mean, you've got to get a swab of, of some saliva and, or even some blood. That's how you get real DNA, but I'm just messing with you here. But, but going back to Easter, the first reason why the resurrection was a game changer was because it proved who Christ was. In a sense, the resurrection was, was, a, was like a DNA test. It was like a, the, the best DNA test you could ever have because it proved who he was. It proved his identity. Throughout his ministry, Jesus made no bones about the fact that he was deity, that he was God. Fairly early on in his ministry, Jesus wanted, the Jews wanted to stone Jesus to death. And here's why. John 10, verse 33, the next passage, it says, The Jews answered him, It is not 
for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. I mean, Jesus was a man. They knew that he was a man, but he, he made himself to be God. He said you're, he claimed to be God. And so they, they, they wanted to stone him for that. They wanted to kill him for that because he said he was God. And of course he said he was God because he was God. And then at the end of his life, Jesus was put on trial. And we saw some of that passage out of John 18. And, he was, and during that trial, he was questioned by the high priest. In Matthew 26, 63, the next passage says, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He demanded to know, are you the Son of God? Who are you? Are you the Son of God? That's what he claimed to be. And I love Jesus' answer. So clever, so smart. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. He turned it around and he, he made him say so. And the high priest went ballistic. Verse 65 says, and then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. You see, it was blasphemous to declare that you are God, except if you are God. If you're God, then you can declare that you are God, and that's not blasphemy. But if you're a man, it was blasphemous to declare that you are God, and that sin was punishable by death, and they wanted Jesus dead. And so they handed him over to be crucified. And here's what they didn't know. All along, it was God's plan for his son to, to be crucified. All along, it was God's plan for his son to die. Not because he spoke blasphemies. He didn't speak blasphemies. He was God. It was God's plan for his son to die because his death was required to pay for the penalty of man's sins. In other words, God ordained Jesus' crucifixion. He planned it all along. The Jews thought Jesus was being crucified because he was a blasphemer. No, no, no. Actually, God allowed him to be crucified to pay for the penalty of our sins. See, the Bible says everyone sins. Right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is man's biggest problem. You know, all those bad thoughts we think and all those bad deeds that we do, there is no one of us that doesn't sin. There is no one of us that doesn't fall short of God's standards. We all sin. And the punishment for sin is death against this holy God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages or the penalty of sin is death. That word death does not refer to physical death but it refers to spiritual death. You know, when, when you experience physical death, I mean, spiritual death is much, much worse than physical death. When you experience physical death, you, you get separated from your loved ones, right? You don't see your loved ones anymore. That's separation from your, 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 your loved ones, and that's, pretty, that's devastating as it is. But spiritual death is when you get separated from God, and, and there's nothing more terrible than to be separated from God for eternity. And that's what sin does because God is a holy God and sin just messes everything up and God can't have anything to do with sin. And so he, it separates us from God and he punishes sin through death. And that means we're separated from God forever. And the thought, the thought that people would be separated from God was so unbearable to him that he did something extraordinary. He sent his son to planet earth to die on a cross for our sins and he became our punishment. He took our punishment. He took our penalty. You may have heard last week that there was a terrorist attack in France, another one in France. An ISIS attacker claimed to be a, an Islamist stormed a supermarket. This was just last week. Took hostages. 
the first man, one of the first responders to show up was this man right here, Arnud Baltram. Arnud Baltram was one of the first ones to arrive on the scene and began negotiating with a terrorist. And, and Baltram offered his life in exchange for a woman hostage. And the terrorist agreed. And so the woman walked out of the supermarket and he walked in. And the moment he walked in, as right, as right after he walked in, the terrorist shot him. He died the next day. Killed, terrorists killed four people altogether. And they finally, the police were finally able to get him. But it's a remarkable story because it illustrates or it is analogous to what God did for us. He sent his son to take our place. He sent his son to die in our behalf for our sins so that we might live just like that woman lives today. And it speaks, this exchange, this substitution, speaks of the depth of God's love for us. Why would he do this? It's because God loves you. God loves you. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you so much. He loved you so much that he allowed his son to die on a cross for your sins, to take your penalty, to take your punishment, to your punishment, your punishment, my punishment, so that we don't have to take it so that we could live. And so Jesus died on that Friday. Perhaps it was April the 3rd in the year 33 AD. And then Sunday came. Sunday comes, and the world witnessed the immense power and glory of God when he raised Jesus from the dead. He raised him from the dead. And it makes sense, if you think about it, it makes absolute sense that if God is God, if God created the universe, then God has the power, and he alone has the power, to raise his son from the dead. God can create the universe. He could do anything, right? He can do anything, and he can raise his son from the dead, and that's exactly what he did. He raised his son from the dead. And thus, the resurrection was like a DNA test. And it proved that Jesus was who he said he was. Proved that he was the son of God. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4, Apostle Paul said, Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That first part just says he was born a man. He was born, he came fully in the form of a man. Verse 4 says, Who was declared, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He was declared the son of God by the fact that he was raised from the dead. Only God could raise his son from the dead. Jesus declared, so was this. So the resurrection, write this one down. The resurrection proved. It proved that Jesus was God. Jesus was not any mere man. He was no mere mortal. He was the son of God. He was God. A few years ago, Inc. Magazine featured an article about a venture capitalist and, and billionaire named Peter Thiel. Um, Peter Thiel, uh, some of you know who he is because uh, he's in the news quite a bit. Um, in, the, in Inc. Magazine, the article about him was titled this, How Peter Thiel is Trying to Save the World. That was the title of the article. And the article is about how Peter Thiel is embarked on a quest to live forever. Billionaire, got lots of money. He was one of the founders of PayPal um, from Silicon Valley. Just, he, he wants to save the world. He wants to save the world. And here's how he wants to do it. He told the Washington Post that death is the great enemy of mankind. He says, death is the great enemy of mankind. And then he said this, here's the quote from the Washington Post, the great unfinished task of the modern world is to turn death from a fact of life into a problem to be solved. And he wants to solve it. He wants to solve death. He wants to figure out how he can conquer death. And he's not the only one who feels that way. 
when his friends, other tech titans like Elon Musk and Larry Ellison of Oracle and Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google heard about that, they decided to partner with him on this mission to conquer death. They said, hey, we'll help you. Let's figure this thing out. In 2013, Sergey and Brin launched a, a website, a, a Google subsidiary called Calico. You ought to go to Calico and take a look at it. Very fascinating stuff. And, and Calico is focused on, quote, curing death, unquote. They want to cure death. They want to figure out how we can live forever. And I get that. I get that because I hate death. I hate it when I have to do a funeral. I hate it when I hear somebody died. I've lost so many uh, relatives recently. I hate it. And who doesn't want to, who, who wants to die? Who wants to die, right? We don't want anyone to die. And so I get what he's trying to do. But, but, but I, I'll tell you what's going to happen. By the time they're done researching this thing, they will have spent, perhaps they will have spent billions of dollars just to find that there's no way to conquer death. That's what they're going to find. There's no way to bring somebody who's died back from the dead. In fact, I understand that Peter Thiel is planning to have his body frozen afterwards so that he can cryogenically, so he can, his, death can be, his body can be brought back in case the discovery uh, for curing death comes after he dies. But guess what? Guess who overcame death? Jesus did. Right? Jesus did. He conquered death. He overcame death when God raised him from the dead. Romans 8, Romans 6, rather, the next passage, Romans 6, 9, says we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death doesn't have control over him. It doesn't have hold, a hold on him. It doesn't have dominion over him. In 2 Timothy 1, 10, it says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus Christ abolished death. He accomplished what no one has ever been able to accomplish and no one will ever be able to accomplish, and that is he conquered death. He beat death. And because he did, we can too. Yeah, you can too. Take a look at what he said to a woman named Martha in John chapter 11. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I mean, what a stunning statement. Especially verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You had to underline that last part, shall never die. Isn't this what Peter Thiel wants? That he would never die? Isn't that what we all want, that we would never die? Isn't that what you want for your children and for your parents and for your brothers and sisters, that they would never die? That they would live forever and ever, your husband and your wife? We all want to beat death. And Jesus said we can if we believe in him. It's amazing. I would love the opportunity to share this good news with Thiel or with Elon Musk or Larry Ellison or those guys at Google. I mean, just think of all the money I can save them. Right? All the billions of dollars that they're going to pour down this drain that's just going to go disappear because they're not going to find the answer to it. But Jesus has the answer, and I can give them the answer. Give me a few minutes, and they can give me the money instead. Right? Don't you think so? Give it to our church. The second reason why, second reason why Easter was a game changer, you can write this one down, is because it conquered death. It conquered death. And this is huge. Man, this is huge. This means that you don't ever have to fear death. If you're afraid of death today, you don't ever have to fear death. You don't have to be, be afraid of dying. 
A few weeks ago, evangelist Billy Graham died. Here's what he said about death before he died. He said this, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I have gone, I will have gone into the presence of God. Amen, right? That's, that's what happens when you die. When your heart beats for the last time, you're not dead. When your heart beats for the last time, you go on, you go immediately, instantly, in a split second, you go into the presence of God and you're alive and you, you're more alive than you've ever been. You live forever and ever in heaven. Billy Graham was right. He's not dead. He's, he's alive because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He conquered death. And you can too if you believe in Jesus. So I need to ask you something. Do you know for sure where you will go after you die? Do you know for sure? I mean, we've got young people here. I can't tell you the number of young people. Every, every day, we lose young people. All these accidents, we see all these young teenagers have been killed in these accidents. Do you know for sure where you will go when you die? That's a question you need to answer. That's a, that's a, that's a question you need to have an answer for. And if you don't know where you will go, and if you're not sure where you will go, or if you think you're going to hell after you die because of the way you live your life, then time out. You need to stop. And you need to figure this thing out. And I can tell you today, you can leave here today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you will know for sure that when you die, you will go to heaven. And who doesn't want to, go to, who doesn't want to live forever? Right? Before you leave here today, put your faith in Christ, and you will go to heaven. You know, there's a special young man in our church. His name is Matthew Rodriguez. His family was here at the last service. This is Matt right here. He's 17 years old. In December, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And currently, he is in the fight of his life. For the last two months, he's been in Miller's Children's Hospital in Orange County. He's been there for two months. And he's been in isolation the entire time because his immune system is gotten so low that he can't be exposed to anybody. I believe the only one that's allowed in there is his mom and sometimes his grandmother and sometimes his brothers. He's uh, lost a lot of weight. He's in constant agonizing, excruciating pain. You know, the other, the other, the other night I woke up at midnight thinking, oh, my back hurts, my back hurts, oh, my back hurts. And I was, I was like agonizing over this. And I was thinking, maybe I should go sleep on the couch. And, I, and then I thought about Matt. And he lives with pain every single day, 24-7. You know, I finally got to sleep. And I got up in the morning, and my back was fine. And I went to work. And I'm fine. And he lives with that 24-7. His mom, Heather, who was here at the last service, had to quit her job. So she could be with Matt every single day at the hospital. His father is out of his life. And so Matt's brothers, who are not much older than him, and, and got a younger brother too, have to work these part-time jobs to help pay for the rent. The only thing, the only thing that keeps Matt going is his faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that he's got. And the prayers of the people, some of the people in this church. I know some of you are aware of Matt's situation. You've been praying for him. On Thursday, just a couple days ago, he had surgery. And, and that night after surgery, um, they had to put a tube into his intestines, I understand. It just, about 9.30 at night, just started bleeding out, just bleeding out. And they just, 
They, they had stat. Every, everybody had to get in there quick. I mean, the whole hospital must have, every doctor probably was around him, and they would finally get that under control and, you know, just finally able to get to sleep that night. But the next day, he was feeling a little bit better, and his grandma, Vicki Kale, who comes to our church, went to see him. And uh, he says, Grandma, I, I want to I tape a greeting to, the, to my church and just wish him a happy Easter. So she pulled out her iPhone and took this grainy video of him. If she had to use a Samsung, it would have been a lot clearer, but she used an iPhone. But I want to just show you. We have to turn the volume up. I just want to show you what Matt had to say to you. Hi, South Bay community. Thank you for your support and prayers. I am making it through this because of my hope in Jesus. I hope to see you all soon. Happy Easter. such a great kid you know and he loves our church grandma told me we got a baptism coming up in a couple weeks and she said man he would love to be baptized but man he he, he's not going to be able to be here can never have an excuse that's probably the best excuse i've ever heard for not getting baptized right we don't have an excuse for not getting baptized i'm kind of going off on a tangent here but will you just i just want to show you that will you just keep Mad in your prayers. And will you just ask God, plead God, plead with God to heal him, touch him, give him strength, pray for his family too. And even as a pastor, I don't understand why these kinds of things happen. I really don't. I don't understand why, how a, six, a 17-year-old kid gets cancer and now he's fighting for his life. He should be out there with his friends having a good time and getting an education, playing sports. I don't know why these things happen, but I do know this. I I do know that God loves Matthew. God loves Matthew more than his family loves Matthew. God loves Matthew more than his mom loves Matthew. And I know that Matthew, I also know this, I also know that Matthew's life and his hope is in Jesus Christ. I don't know what he would do without God. You know why? Because our God is, our God isn't weak. Our God is powerful because our God, he is the risen Lord. He is a mighty king. Our God's not dead, right? God's not dead. He is alive. Our God is alive. And he is everywhere. And God is everywhere. He is so mighty. He is so big. He is everywhere. Wherever you go, he is there. He sees everything. Sometimes that's bad, right? Because when we do bad things. But he sees everything you do, good and bad. He knows everything you think, even before you think it, he knows that because that's who God is. God is so powerful. And that's who Matt has put his hope and his trust in. That's why you can have hope too. Because our God is powerful. See, the third reason why Easter is a game changer is because it gives us hope. When everything seems hopeless, you can have hope because of Easter. Paul said in Ephesians 1.19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Let me read that to you one more time. I pray that you will understand. I pray that you get this. In other words, was what he was saying. Get what? That the incredible greatness of God's power is for us, for you. God's power is for you. What power? 
The same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what, that's what, I pray that you will understand. That's what he's saying. I pray that you will understand that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for you to help you, to strengthen you, to help you to do all these difficult things that you're supposed to do, to, to comfort you, to give you hope, to touch you, to heal you, to be with you, no matter what it is that you're going through. That's where we can have hope. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're battling cancer like, like Matt, or maybe somebody in your family. Maybe a child, or a loved one is battling cancer. Maybe you have some other type of illness. You can have hope just like Matt has hope because the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you. Maybe you're all stressed out at work or maybe your marriage is falling apart or maybe your kids have run away and, and they're on drugs. Maybe you're a single parent and the burden of raising them and putting a roof over their head all falls on you. Maybe your boss is all over your case and you see the handwriting on the wall. You know you're not going to last there very much longer. Maybe you can't find a job and maybe you're homeless. Maybe you're living out of your car or maybe you're living on the streets or maybe you're battling an addiction or maybe you're facing jail or maybe you're being bullied or maybe you're being abused or maybe you're all alone in this world and you think there's no hope. You can be more wrong. There's hope regardless of your situation because we have a powerful God. You have a powerful God who loves you and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and that's why you can face tomorrow and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And that's how Matt can get through what he gets through. I don't know how he does it. But it's only because of the power of God that is there with him and the presence of God that is there with him. So I want you to write this one down. The resurrection gives me hope. It gives, me so, it gives us hope. You can have hope for your life. So Easter is a game changer because it proved that Jesus was God. He's God. Second, it, Easter was a game changer because it, conquered death the resurrection conquered death and third one is the game changer because it gives us hope gives us hope now if jesus was god if he was really raised from the dead it begs this final question what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about it? If, if all this is true all those manuscripts all this bear this out what are you going to do about Easter? Well, as far as the way that I see it, you've got three choices. You've got only three choices. First choice is you can do nothing. You can do absolutely nothing about it. You can leave here today and not give Jesus another thought. And in which case, if and when you die, and, you, and one day you will die, every one of us will die, if and when you, if you die without having made peace with God, then you will be separated from him a holy God, because of your sin, you will be separated from him. The wages of sin is death forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's not okay. That's option number one. Option number two, you could leave here today and say, that was a good service. I like the food. I'll be back next Easter. And if that's you, and if you think that Jesus is someone you can pay homage to just once a year or twice a year, throw Christmas in there, you'd be gravely mistaken. If I paid homage to my wife once a month, if I paid attention to her only once a month or once a week, or only once a day, I would be in big trouble. 
She wants me to lavish my love upon her every day, every moment, every second. Right, guys? That's what we got to do. Right? And, and, and ladies, too. You, you got to lavish your love upon somebody every single day. And if we love Jesus only once a year at Easter and at Christmas, we'd be making a big mistake. You can do that. That's number two. Or number three. Your third choice would be this. You could leave here today deciding that this, from the, this day forward, from this day forward, you will become a fully devoted follower of Christ. And that means from this day forward, you're going to live for him. You're going to do everything you can to live for him. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to still mess up. I mess up all the time. But God forgives me every single day, right? But you're going you're gonna to endeavor to live for him. You're going to strive to be like him, more like him than yourself. You're going to strive to grow in your relationship with him by coming to church every week, by reading the Bible every day, by praying, by serving him. And you might be saying, well, Pastor Gary, why are you telling me I have to do all those things for? You know why? Because Jesus is Almighty God. He is Almighty God, and he died on the cross for your sins. He took your penalty. He took your punishment. And then he was raised from the dead. He conquered, he conquered death so that you, can, you and I could live forever. And he gives us hope. That's why. So what are you going to do about Easter? As far as I'm concerned, there's only res- one worthy response to his death and resurrection. And that is we would follow him with all of our hearts. Can you imagine this woman whose life was exchanged for this police officer in France and she goes on and she doesn't even acknowledge the family and say she doesn't even say to them thank you for your thank you for the sacrifice you made your, that your husband or your father made so that I could live and said it's like ah, I'm fine you know it was me I did it all by myself wow it'd be an outrage I think the only worthy response is that we would follow Christ with all of our hearts because of who he is and because of what he did for us. So will you do that? What will you do about Easter? Will you decide today that from this day forward, you're gonna follow him in everything you have? I hope you will. I hope you will. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Will you just bow your heads? As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I wanna ask you something. If today... You choose option number three. And you would like to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. I'm not asking you to become religious. I'm asking you to follow Jesus because of who he was and because of what he did for you. If you would like to become a fully devoted follower of Christ, I want to ask you just to raise your hand. No one's looking. Just say, I want to become, I will follow you, Jesus. Yeah, keep your hands up. That's beautiful. I see a bunch of hands. Raise your hand. If you would like for Jesus to forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future, raise your hands. Have you, you have sins in your life that you need to have forgiven? And you want him to forgive you? That's why he died. Raise your hands. If you would like to acknowledge that Jesus died on a cross for you and took your place, raise your hands. If you'd like to know that one day you will go to heaven after you die, you would like to know you're going to go to heaven 
Raise your hands. If you'd like to conquer death like Peter Thiel and live forever in eternity, raise your hands. If you'd like the power of God that raised Christ from the dead to be available in your own life to help you and to give you hope every single day, raise your hands. and Keep your hands up high. By raising your hands, you are letting God know of your decision today to follow Him. And nothing brings Him more joy. Nothing brings Him more glory than to see your hands go up. Father God, you see these hands. You see the hands of your people that have gone up here today. You know each person by name. You know the number of hairs on their head. And Father God, I know that you are so pleased to know that these who have raised their hands want their sins forgiven. They acknowledge that they acknowledge that your son, Jesus was your son and that he died on a cross for our sins and Father they, all these hands express that desire to you that they want to live forever and so we thank you God we thank you for Jesus we thank you that he conquered death and we thank you that by our expressing our faith in you that all these hands all those who have raised their hands will go to heaven one day God thank you so much for, for Easter Thank you so much for the bibliographical evidence that proves that the New Testament was real. And we can believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And we give you our lives, Lord. We surrender our lives to you. Help us, God. We know the days will not be easy. We ask you to help us to follow you with all of our hearts. And Father, we pray for Matt. God, will you you heal him? God, today, from this day forward, I know that hundreds and hundreds of people will be praying for him. Hear our cries, God. Hear our pleas. Bring healing to his body. and Bring him back to us. Thank you for his faith. Keep it strong. Help him to keep trusting you. Help him to keep looking to you. And we lift him up to you. And we lift all these prayers up to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.